Well, thank you, Mark. I'm just going to make a few stage adjustments here, or podium adjustments. Mark, don't get all emotional on me, because I tend to be sort of a sympathetic crier. And so as soon, you know, talk about people having sympathetic labor pangs when their wife or loved one goes into labor, I sort of have sympathetic crying pains. I don't know, you know, tear up, I'm, I'm right there with you. And just before I'm about to speak, that's not a good idea because then I'm, I'm all teary. So please don't do that again. <laughs> that's it, that's it. Okay. The other thing I would, I would prefer not happen the next time I speak in chapel, if I'm invited back, is, <laughs> is to have Phil Calloway be able to say something before I get up. <laughs> it's a reminder to me, you know, that old adage, keep your friends close and keep your Callaways even closer on a tight leash. But Phil's a good friend, as is Mark, and uh, I enjoy uh, every time he pokes fun at me. It's just, it's his way of, you know, that's his love language. So I'm okay with that. Well, this morning, we have been reading, working our way systematically through First John. And, you know, we, we find out that First John is, it, it's not linear. It doesn't, it doesn't yield itself to our nice analytical ca uh, categories. It's, as I was thinking about it again, it, it's a little like uh, a, a wedding ring. It, it has, it starts out at a certain point and then you move around, and then you go from point to point, and all of a sudden you're back where you started again. But it's all connected. And, and I think John does that deliberately. There, there's the sense in which the circle, of course, is, is the purest geometrical form because it's eternal, right? Has no beginning and no end. And the wedding band itself is made up of a pure metal. It's incorruptible, it's indissoluble. And so thinking of, of John's gospel or the way John envisions the gospel in this kind of wedding ring metaphor, I think is a good way of approaching his letter. Don't try to think in, in conventional sort of Western categories. Just sort of let yourself kind of go round and round on it because it'll always, it'll, it'll just bring you back to the same interconnected points. And so John's letter is about love, but it's not linear. I've got two sets of notes here that I'm going to refer to back and forth, so bear with me. So what I want to do this morning, I was assigned, or, or the passage that, that I chose of the ones available were the last, I think, six or seven verses of chapter four. But what I want to do, just before we get into talking about the passage, is I'm, I look back and I want to read all of chapter four, because as chapter four I think it's representative of this kind of ring metaphor that, that you start someplace, you go next, it looks like, and then all of a sudden you're back where you started. And, and I think John does that very deliberately. So I'm going to read 1 John chapter 4, 
Don't, uh, if you have your Bibles handy, that's good, but don't feel like you have to get them out at this point. In fact, I would rather you just close up Bibles or if you're following along on your phones, close up your phones. If your phones are open and you're not following along on your phones but doing something else on them, just out of respect for the reading of God's word, power them down, close them off, and, and just listen. If nothing else, if you get nothing else out of this chapter or this chapel, just listen to John chapter 4 as I read it. I'm reading from uh, the New Revised Standard Version. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now is already in the world. Little children, you are from God and have conquered them, for the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves God is, let me start there again. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the father has sent his son as the savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the son of God and they abide in God. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers and sisters, are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, 
those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. You can hear it, can't you? Just those same themes coming round and round, connecting to one another again. So this morning, I want to dwell in God's invitation through John to live in that love. You know, John, John I can just imagine him with a, a bit of a, a smile as he sort of sometimes looks at my or thinks about my analytic categories. We want to outline this. We want to parse it. We want to analyze that. Very Western, as Dr. Schmidt reminded our SS-170 class this morning. And yet, John, he's just, you can see, you know, if he's smiling down on us, he kind of has this rueful little smile, and he says, just, just keep reading it. Just keep reading it until you get it. You know, you'll get there eventually. Just try to, just, just dwell in it and don't overanalyze it. It's a, it's a little bit sort of paradoxical. It's almost, you know, almost Yoda-ish, right? As, the, as he's instructing young Skywalker, young Skywalker, you know. <laughs> don't be there, just don't do it, just dwell. Dwell, young Skywalker. <laughs> Okay, we don't have to get there, we just have to dwell. So that's what I want to do. I just want to dwell with it. And, and what I, I just want to draw out a few themes that are always interconnected. They aren't linear, but they just emerge from the reading. And we're going to do it two ways. I'm going to give you a series of A words, three words beginning with A, because I like alliteration. They help me remember things. So, and, and once we've done that, we'll circle back around and then we'll use a series of T words to talk about the same thing, just to help us sort of dwell in this love that John is telling us about. Let's pray before we do that. Just bow with me. Almighty God, unto whom no secrets are hidden, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of, Holy, of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, one of the themes that I see emerging at the beginning of John 4 is this thing called attunement. To be attuned to God's spirit is important to live in his love. He says, test the spirits. Be attuned. Be discerning. Live in attunement to God's word. Be in, you know, other places in scripture called, use the term being in step with the spirit. But if I, an, an example of attunement, and this goes back to um, you know, some, somewhere around the days that Phil Calloway was referring to, the early days of Servant, and it was the days of pre-cable TV. Well, even, I mean, cable was available, but we were too poor to afford it. So we had a, we had a television in our basement, and it had a, a cable that ran up to an aerial that was on a, a rotating pole on the outside of our house that could be, that could be turned, Right? And to, get one, to make sure that we got one of the three stations that, that we were wanting to watch at that time, 
One of us, you know, my kids would be, one would be down in the basement, one would be at the top of the stairs in the kitchen, and then I would be at the back door that the kitchen opened onto with the aerial. And and I I would give it a turn, say, how's that? No, no, not yet. You know, and turn it a little bit more, fine tune it. Oh, there, okay, now we are tuned in, right? So this sense that, that attunement brings clarity to what we are looking at. And, and John here is asking us to be attuned. Be attuned to the Spirit of God. Test the spirits, but be attuned to God's Spirit. That leads us to a second theme, and it's been talked about already. Attunement leads to abiding. And, and there's, you know, what is abiding? There's, on the one hand, there is no mystery to it. Uh, abiding takes practice. We have, to, we have to work at abiding. And when we put it in, in terms of a relationship, you work at a relationship. You abide with somebody by spending time, by listening, by interacting. And it's kind of interesting, you know, and we sort of think, well, how, how do we abide with, with a presence that's, that's, no, that's not embodied and near to us? And one of the examples of abiding that I found really interesting was uh, in a book by sociologist Felicia Wu Song. Uh, it's a book on digital culture called Restless Devices. She teaches sociology at Westmont College. It's a Christian liberal arts, co- liberal arts college in California. And one of the things she noted was the relationship that many of her students, she included, had with her cell phone. And she was asked, one time she asked students in a survey to talk about their understanding with their phone. Here's an example, a representative example of one of the responses she got back. This is a student writing her saying, when I am with friends walking around campus or by myself doing nothing, I feel my phone crying out to me. It begs for my attention. It tells me to check Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, you name it. Your friends have sent you a video or posted a new photo that you need to see. You have emails you need to look at. It tells me it will save me from awkward conversations and social situations I do not like dealing with. I now see that without restrictions and limits, my phone will always be telling me what to do. This isn't, you know, this isn't just a tool, right? The the, the way we relate to our phones, we, we touch it, we stroke it, we swipe it, we look at it, it looks back at us. It is our precious right? That's abiding, right? We don't, our phones aren't our tools. They are our help meets. They walk with us through the day. We are in relationship. You're not in a relationship to a hammer or a pair of pliers. That's a tool. No, no, no. It's abiding. Think about it. To abide is to, is to, be interacting with in a, in a loving and accessible way. One of the things I've, talked, I've told a few of you, this is an experiment that, that I've done just to, to test my abiding. I've got a New Testament about the size of a cell phone. And for the last little while, maybe you can call it a Lenten exercise, I don't know. I, I, want to, I try to carry my New Testament with me wherever my phone goes and try to have them together. And it just reminds me and says, okay, how much time do I spend with this as opposed to this. See, 
we have an expectation that when we take this thing up, it's going to tell us something, it's going to, or we're going, to, we're going to communicate with somebody through it. Do we have the same expectation? Just a thought. Abiding. So we've got, what was my first one? Attunement. Okay, good, work with me. Attunement leads to abiding, and then abiding leads to acting. Love, God's love, we need to be attuned to God's love. We are invited to abide in God's love. And then towards the end of the chapter, we are invited to act in God's love. We, we connect. You know, he says, you can say that you love God, but if you don't love your brothers and sisters, it's meaningless. So what John does is he collects, he, he connects lip service to limb service. I, I just made that up while I was over there getting ready to speak. That just came to me. I think that was a God thing. And I think that was really, you can quote me on that, right? But you better cite me. I want credit for that one. Yes, abiding and attunement lead to acting. Lip service and limb service need to go together. I really like that. That's good. <laughs> this is just water. <laughs> okay. Those, I want to move through this a little more quickly. Those are, our, those are our three A words. We are invited to attune to love. We are invited to abide in God's love and we are invited to act in God's love. Now, if that doesn't work for you, let me take you through a, a series of four T words. We're mapping the same territory. We're just putting it in a slightly different light. First of all, John begins, or from about verse seven onward, he, he talks about God's love as being evident or most evident in the sacrificial life and death of Jesus. In other words, love has a testimony. The testimony of God's love should be our rallying point. Just as Jesus loved in his earthly ministry, so that same servant love should draw us to love others. So love has a testimony. If we're not sure how to love, let's look at Jesus. Secondly, love has a territory. That is, he says, that God has sent his spirit to indwell us. We, we are, in a sense, God's territory. We, we are staked out as belonging to him. And you could use another T word came to me there. Not only territory can be, like real estate can be a little bit impersonal, right? But we are love's treasure. We we are, like First Peter says, he takes all these, in, in chapter two, he takes all these metaphors from the way God talked about Israel, his, his peculiar people. You know, you are my peculiar treasure. You are a royal priesthood. You are a living building of stones being built up, right? So we are love's treasure. God puts his stamp on us to mark us as his and then we aren't just his to be stored away in some warehouse. We are a peculiar treasure. We are valuable to him. So we've got love's testimony, love's territory, and love's treasure. And then 
we have love's triumph. He says that, that leads to boldness. As he is, or as he was, so we are in the world. And it's a bit of an ambiguous phrase. And, and, and the and New Testament theologians aren't said, oh, this could go more than one of two ways, both with which are legitimate. On the one hand, it gives us boldness or confidence to, in a sense, enter into God's presence, or when we enter into it more directly, we do not need to fear his judgment. So there's a future-oriented aspect to it. But I think there's a present-oriented aspect to it as well, that as he, is in the, as he was in the world, so he has equipped us to be. We have that boldness to, because of his presence in us to be his testimonies, to act in ways consonant with the gospel, trusting that God's spirit will work in and through us. The paradox of that word fear is, is we can, in a sense, we are still ha- able to have or still to have a holy fear of God, but we are no longer to be fearful, right? Fear and fearfulness. One, yes, but fearful, no. Love has a triumph. We have boldness because as he was in the world, so we are. And then we come to the final T. Love has a task. I'm getting there, just hang on a second. And this task is not without an accompanying test, right? Love has a task, love God. God initiated love to us, we are to love him in return. That's love's task, but love also comes with a test, right? Say that you love God, you can test your love for God by how well you love your brothers and sisters. I wanna leave you with two stories here this morning of love's task as it's worked out through and incarnated through love's test. And one had to do, it's a great setup that Phil Calloway uh, gave in his announcement this morning. That, that book, uh, The Jesus Revolution, which is also a movie, if you haven't seen it yet, you gotta go see it. No, I'm not gonna pay for your admission. But <laughs> if you go see it, it, it is well worth it. Um, and there's, there's a story that the movie illustrates that I think it's in the book as well, comes out of that time period. That was, and to, when you see the movie, this particular incident I'm gonna tell you about is worth the price of admission alone. Um, the Jesus Revolution tells the story of the revival that took place in Southern California in the early 1970s. And it, it happened among a most unlikely group of people, namely hippies. And I was gonna say, yeah, you need to ask your parents about it. And then I'm going, no, you need to ask your grandparents about it. That's, gosh, I feel old. Okay. Um, Anyway, these, these sort of countercultural kids that identified with the, the radical rejection of conventional culture of the day, they were exhorted by their, the, the guru of the day, spoke their spokesperson, a man by the name of Timothy Leary, who invited them or urged them to turn on to hallucinogenic drugs, uh, t- uh, tune in to the harmonious realities of the world around you and your own inner perspectives, whatever that means. 
and to drop out of the corporate rat race. And for most kids, that meant dropping out of college. Going to San Francisco, which was sort of the heartbeat of the movement, the summer of love, the early 1970s, get stoned, join a commune, and have as much sex as you can. That was the hippie life. That was the mantra. Make love, not war, against the backdrop of the Vietnam War. Many students were drawn to San Francisco during the self-proclaimed summer of love, but they ended up becoming disillusioned with Timothy Guru and the false promises, and instead they began to find Jesus. And so, as they were on the West Coast, some of them wandered down to Los Angeles, and so these hippies turned Jesus people, as they became known, started showing up in churches in the Los Angeles area. And one of them was a respectable, sort of middling, middle-class church in the Burbs, pastored by, a name, pa pastored by a man named Chuck Smith. And it caused no stir among the respectable, middle-aged, middle-class folks who made up his perhaps mostly dwindling congregation when these kids showed up. They would show up in their tie-dyed shirts, their grubby bell-bottom jeans, long hair, you know, dirty sandal-clad feet, because they wanted to learn about Jesus. And when the elders in Smith's church complained to him that the kids' bare feet were dirtying the church sanctuary carpet, Smith found himself in a kind of spiritual quandary. On the one hand, he had to, you know, would he side with sort of the respectability, respectable conventions of his church, or would he embrace this opportunity to exercise a kind of radical faith, believing that these kids were the real deal? And Smith decided that these Jesus people were the real deal. They were members of God's family, and they needed to be loved just as he loved his own family members. So one Sunday morning, these complaining elders turned up at the church to see, they saw a long line of Jesus people outside the entrance of the church. And when they went and got to the front of the line, they, they saw Chuck Smith with his suit jacket off, his shirt sleeved, rolled up, and he was kneeling by a basin of water that had a chair next to him, and he would invite each one of these kids to come sit in the chair. He would wash their feet, have them walk on a towel to dry, and say, go, go into the church now. You're not going to mess up the carpet. Right? He, he cut the, the argument of his elders, the pseudo-argument of his elders, right? That just cut the legs off right out from under them. His elders were dumbstruck. Their complaint was undercut by the servant love of Chuck Smith. He would go on to found Calvary Chapel and continue to love these very odd and most unexpected disciples. That's the attuned nature of love. It's love that acts because it's abiding. Now, that was a conventional sort of, uh, or a very deliberate act of love. And those are, those are acts that are available to us. We see a need, we respond. But sometimes there are unintentional acts of love where we are not even aware of carrying that out. And, and that happened to me back in, it was my, my first uh, time away from home. I went to Cape Henry Bible School in London, not in London, in, Cape, in Carnforth, England. And the fall of 77, I was a for whatever reason, one, one time in, in, into the weeks there, I was just, I was a homesick kid. And I think that had been exacerbated 
by perhaps the, the rejection of some friends at the time and just feeling sort of excluded and lonely and just kind of wondering, oh God, what did I come to this Bible college for? This is just, this is just not working for me. Um, and that, that evening, feeling kind of lonely, depressed, and down, you know, maybe in hindsight it wasn't a huge crisis, but for an 18-year-old, that was a pretty big crisis. My, my desk in the conference hall was at the very back, and it was right on the aisle, where one of the main aisles where people would come in. And so I got, we had evening lectures of several nights a week, and I got to, cl- I got to class that evening. I was just sitting in my desk, and I, th- I don't even know if I was praying, but I was just kind of, in some ways, pouring my heart out to God. And there were some latecomers coming in to the chapel, and I don't believe this ever happened again or before, but one or two, three of the stragglers came by, and they were people I knew, but not necessarily, and, and as they came by, they just touched my shoulder. Didn't even make eye contact, didn't say anything. And the first person did it, and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. A few seconds later, a second student comes, same thing, right? And three of them. And it was, you know, it was instant, they had no idea. And I never told them. But for me, that was God's touch. So think about it. They'll never know. We are sometimes never going to be aware of loving gestures, of loving touches like that. But if we're abiding, if we're in tuned, those actions can be actions of love as well. We are John's gospel records Jesus' new commandment. He says, love each other. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Not if you love your enemies, not if you begin by loving outsiders, but if you love each other. So we're, I'm going to invite the musicians to come up at this time, and we're going to close with a, a, a worship song that was popular in the 60s, very much from that era. And it bears witness to this testimony of they will know we are Christians by our love. I think the Apostle John would be in full agreement with us. We'll close with an Anglican response. The Lord be with you. Be sent forth to love and serve each other this day. Thanks be to God. Amen.